0: We are exploring generative AI in pharma and drug discovery with someone who is a true pioneer in this field who's been working with generative AI for years. Alex Javaronkov is the founder and the CEO of InSilico Medicine. What I find so interesting is generative AI is the latest rage and hype. But you've been working in this field for, for years and years. So tell us about your work and tell us about in silico medicine.
1: Our first uh, um, experiments in uh, generative AI were in 2015, 2016. Uh, we started in um, uh, generative chemistry originally and utilized the technology called generative adversarial networks. Uh, that uh, is actually at the core of the many generative AI platforms uh, in use today. Uh, and that's, that technology, uh, to kind of put it simply, uh, is um, a combination of uh, two deep neural networks uh, competing with each other. That's why it's called adversarial. One is generating meaningful um, uh, data uh, in response to a query. And another one is evaluating this response uh, to see if it's true or false or how close it is to ground truth. So since then, this technology, uh, generative AI, has advanced quite considerably. Uh, and in 2017, Google published uh, uh, a wonderful concept uh, where they introduced an attention layer into generative um, networks. And uh, um, uh, it's called the transformer architecture. And that changed everything. So, those attention layers allow deep neural networks uh, to uh, generalize and uh, later generate uh, meaningful output uh, with the desired properties. And uh, uh, we've uh, been in this field uh, pretty much since the very beginning. So, Ian Goodfellow, who pioneered. generative adversarial networks, so we did not invent them. We started uh, uh, kind of building on top of them in drug discovery in 2016. My first paper was published in 2016, uh, demonstrating the applications of adversarial autoencoders to small molecule drug design uh, using uh, molecular fingerprint representations of molecular structures. So think of it as, um, you know, painting or imagining Uh, new molecules with the desired properties, just like you do it with uh, images today, right? So you say, okay, DALI or mid-journey, draw me uh, an image with those properties. So uh, we thought that it would be cool to do the same with molecules. Uh, And our first paper was believe it or not, 2016, so submitted in June, uh, published in December. uh, And it actually made some shockwaves uh, in the AI community originally, because it was a really cool application, uh, approximately... Um, so in October, same year, Alanis from Harvard uh, also put his article um, on a very similar, with a similar idea, but with variational autoencoder on archive, uh, so on a preprint server, and um, uh, we were at that time already in a peer review process with in a peer review journal. And uh, yeah, he actually has more citations for his paper because later he published in a peer review journal 2018, but uh, it went on archive when we were still in review. Um, but then he joined us as an advisor uh, anyway, so who cares about who did it first? Um, but uh, we were probably the first who... Um, used the generative AI to design a molecule. But then uh, it took us uh, several years. So we, of course, published multiple theoretical works around the generation of small molecules with the desired properties uh, using different approaches. Uh, we came up with, you know, reinforced adversarial um, uh, threshold neural computer, uh, uh, adversarial threshold neural computer, uh, and many, many other um uh, techniques where we also started incorporating reinforcement learning, uh, so you know, rewarding and punishing some of those models, uh, and published a lot of theory. But in 2017, for the first time, so actually, um, just a year before we talked,
0: you've raised 400 million dollars. So when you say invested the money, uh, invest the money over this time, you've raised a significant amount of money.
1: The road to this money was not easy right so many companies in our field uh, especially those that are designed by investors to access financial markets because it's a trend right so it's i um they like to invest a lot of money right away uh, give the founder uh, some stock and not follow, sometimes it's not even a founder uh and uh, it's an engineered company with you know very polished messaging but usually, the technology there is just starting to, 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 to be developed. In our case, we grew organically, and we were founded in 2014. Uh, but only in 2019, we raised like, really serious money. So like, we, we raised the first $37 million, uh, uh, like big money, in 2019, uh, in, in, in September.
0: So, raising this money, what is the objective? What are you actually? What are you trying to accomplish?
1: In 2017, we were poor, <laughs> uh, and we actually didn't have a lot of money to invest in synthesis. I'm just trying to explain why uh, a, a generative AI in drug discovery is different from generative AI anywhere else. So. In drug discovery, you really need to synthesize and test, right? And the probability that you are going to get something uh, that works is very low because uh, the level of precision has to be much, much higher than when you paint a painting that you like, right? It actually has to, the molecule has to bind to a very specific, uh, very tiny site on a protein of interest. And if it doesn't, you fail. Right, and it's very, very, uh, and and before that, you need to actually make this molecule, and you need to make this protein, uh, and you need to make the assay, experimental assay. So uh, in this case, you spend maybe a few months building the generative model, but then you can spend uh, you know a year validating just a few molecules. So that's something for you know your listeners to understand. So and also the process is very expensive. So it's not just the training of the model. You need to synthesize the molecule and test it. So think of it as launching a spacecraft, right? So you have to design it. You generate a spacecraft and then you you need to launch it. So that's the synthesis part for us. So we were cash poor at that time. So I remember I sold my apartment at that time and, uh, you know, invested everything in silico. Uh, And uh, uh, the molecules that we synthesized, that WUSHI APTEC, it's a very famous contract research organization. That's another thing I can probably talk about today. Um, so they synthesized, tested, and it worked. And 2018, we published the first paper on that. And that led to the first uh, kind of round of investment that we got uh, from credible investors. So we got our first $6 million after synthesizing and testing the first AI-generated molecules after the papers were published. In 2018, in August, we published the first experimental validation of AI-generated molecules. And then uh, we, of course, advanced even more. Uh, and in 2019, we published a really big paper in Nature Biotechnology showing that uh, you know, Wuxi Aptek actually decided to challenge us. They said, okay, well, can we give you any target?" And how quickly can you design small molecules and test them? And we showed that in 46 days, we can very rapidly come up with small molecules uh, for, for the target that they give. It wasn't a hard target, um, uh, synthesize them and test them in many assays. So, my, metabolic stability, microsomal stability, activity, uh, so enzymatic assay, and then all the way into mice in 46 days. So that was pretty cool. We, of course did this experiment actually in 2018, so people knew about it, and uh, gave us the 37 million. Nowadays, if you were to do something like that in somewhere else, in some other industry, you can get probably half a billion. <laughs> uh, but uh, for us, it wasn't easy, right? And our first step, after we got the first money round B, so 37 million, 2019, um, that was actually after we talked. Uh, with you, right? So before that, we didn't have much money. And uh, uh, we developed the software that other people can use, but not only for chemistry, also for biology. So we allow people using generative AI to discover new targets. And then we also allow them uh, and decipher the mechanism of disease and then generate the small molecules with the desired properties. And then also using generative AI, using transformer neural network, we predict the outcome of clinical trial, phase two to phase three. So basically trying to replicate the entire process of pharmaceutical R&D and turn it into a generative exercise. Uh, And we let people use the software. And then in 2019, 2020, we actually thought, okay, well, how do we make people believe that it really works? Right? How do we make the chat GPT moment in pharma? And we decided to actually synthesize and uh, um, test our own molecules for a novel target. So go all the way ourselves, right? And that's, that required uh, a very substantial capital raise, right? Because, uh, and I can show you a slide, uh, so your um, readers uh, the listeners will, um, will understand what I'm talking about. Uh, so, let me do that now and just use visual aid. Um, but I'll talk through this just in case. Uh, so, here is the slide which um, depicts the pharmaceutical drug discovery and development process. Uh, so, and it comes from a very famous research paper in 2010 uh, by Stephen Paul in Nature Reviews Drug Discovery. So, I highly recommend uh, reading this paper. It's called How to Improve R&D Productivity, the Pharmaceutical Industry's Great Challenge. It shows you the many steps uh, of drug discovery and development, starting from disease hypotheses and uh, uh, target discovery. So that's where you are trying to understand why the disease happens and why, what is driving it. So what are the critical components, protein targets that are driving the disease? So, the probability of success of this uh, uh, exercise, of this task, is you know, 90 uh, – uh, it, it, it fails most of the time – 1% to 5% success rate, 95% uh, to 99% failure rate. Most of the time, it's done in academia, uh, it takes decades, and costs billions of dollars, usually funded by the government. And very often, people rely on scientific serendipity to find a good target. We still don't understand why Alzheimer's happens. We still don't understand uh, uh, many cancers, ALS, multiple sclerosis. So many of those age-associated processes, we actually don't understand. That's why actually one of the reasons why I'm focusing so much on aging, um, because it's a big challenge. Uh, but once you identify a target, once you validate it also in animal models, you start chemistry exercises. So here you've got target to hit hit to lead, lead optimization, preclinical exercises. So uh, it takes you, uh, here you can see it takes you uh, five and a half years from the time you found the target to the time you start human clinical trials. And again, the failure rate there is pretty significant. So uh, only less than 50% of those were going to get there, and it will cost you half a billion dollars by this time.
0: Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so we can send you our newsletter. So, how is that distinct from what you're doing then?
1: It's not distinct. So, we still have to go through all of those uh, steps. We have to go through every single step. As a matter of fact, we have to generate even more data than usually the pharmaceutical company would do uh, internally. Because we need to learn and also we try to come up with redundant data sets. So when we do um, an experiment, we try to do this experiment twice in two different labs just to be able to, to be sure and also to generate more data. And if the experimental results differ from one lab to another, we need to understand why and also teach our AI why it happened. It's extremely important to have this redundancy because many of the uh, pharmaceutical industry failures happen because uh, somebody did the experiment wrong and just didn't report the data. So we want to set the new standard in quality of uh, the delivery of those uh, new molecules for new targets so that when the pharmaceutical company looks at it, they're like, okay, it's not only our level, it's above our level. Uh, in a traditional approach. So you can see that here it costs you half a billion dollars. So AI can make this process significantly less expensive. And also, uh, the most important part here is increasing the probability of success. So your major objective function in this entire exercise when you're looking at the slide is to pass phase two human clinical trials in humans. So you really want to. So phase two is when you test efficacy, when you see if the drug is not only safe but it's also effective. And this part, this uh, uh, this task, usually fails 66 percent of the time. You can see from this slide, and actually sometimes it's even higher probability of failure. This slide comes from uh, you know 2010. Uh, and since then, the situation actually got worse. So we've got Elrhum's law uh, working in pharma. I'm not sure if you have ever heard about L-room law, but it's Moore's law uh, backwards. <laughs> so Moore's <laughs> law is when things become exponential, I know, and you've got doubling of performance every few years. Here, you've got uh, a reduction of performance every few years because. In pharma, many of the low-hanging fruits have been picked up already, and it's very difficult to find something that is novel and, at the same time, uh, can be done on reasonable timeframes on a reasonable budget. So, you have to go expensive. And that's why many pharmaceutical companies, they have to raise a lot of capital to take the drug into the clinic. And uh, uh, we had to do this, too. So, we had to become a biotech. So that's the reason uh, why we raised so much money that you've mentioned uh, originally, but we raised all this money in 2021, 2022, mostly, because that's when you started investing a lot in your own drugs. The beauty of those drugs is that if they succeed, if you have a phase two complete asset and you are addressing a chronic disease with no cure uh, and also potentially blockbuster disease. It means that the after you pass phase two, this drug can can be worth you know, $10 billion. Right? So we just saw one uh, story like that. A company called Nimbus Therapeutics completed phase two uh, clinical study for a very old target. Uh you know, I usually say that you know, my grandmother was working on this target, it's not novel, level of novelty is low. But they completed the uh, clinical trial for a novel molecule for this dro- for this target, for psoriasis. It's called TIC2 target. And sold it for $6 billion to Takeda. Right? So yes, it takes you a long time to kind of polish this diamond. And yeah, very often this diamond cracks. But uh, if you do polish it till phase two, the payout is very significant. And that is how biotechnology works. So when you have an AI tool that allows you to move quickly and increase the probability of success, the best strategy for any AI powered for any AI company is to develop its own drugs. Because if you can demonstrate that you can do it, people will believe in AI. Pharma is very conservative. They've seen many transformations over the years. They've seen... You know, the human genome being sequenced. They've seen um, the revolution in computing, mobile, social networking, uh, globalization, the emergence of contract research organizations, CRISPR, IPSC. But we only had 50 drugs approved by the FDA last year. And the year before was a rec- second record year in history in terms of the drug approvals, in my opinion, only um, Seven of those drugs approved last year were innovative, small molecule drugs. So sorry, but uh, the industry is getting worse. Uh, And if you have the the AI tool uh, that really is transformative, you want to develop your own drugs, you want to sell them to pharma, you want to enable pharma with your own tools. uh, But one mistake that we were making in the past when we just started, we started Doing a lot of pilots with Big Pharma. Right. And that's actually the topic I can expand on a lot.
0: And why was that a mistake? That seems like a kind of natural course of action, <coughs> excuse me, to partner with these larger companies.
1: Seems like a reasonable course of action. And at that time, I mean, we also got lucky that we started partnering with them in the early days, like 2014 to 2017. We were always partnering on large, large scale uh, projects, uh, and at that time, the pharmaceutical companies did not have massive AI teams themselves internally, and they were using. They, they were willing to share data. They were willing to share the experience. They were much more collaborative, but at the same time, they were much more cautious, and the budgets for AI were very small. Uh, so we learned a lot during those collaborations. So I actually. Uh, decided to go end-to-end back when we partnered with one big pharmaceutical company. And they actually challenged us in many different departments to try to apply AI to the most complex problems they've got. And we solved many of those problems and we realized, oh, but department A does not talk to department B. And department B does not talk to department C. They don't even know all the processes internally, big pharma, right? So it's disconnected. So if we could connect it in one seamless workflow, uh, we could actually increase the, pro- the, the performance of the pharma dramatically even by just this connectivity, even if you know AI does not result in huge uh, performance gains. Uh, so that's when the idea of end-to-end originated. But it was a mistake also to partner with them because, um, uh, you know, What I found as a major problem in big pharmaceutical companies is that people come and go, right? So you see that this timeline. So to develop a drug and put it on the market, it may take you a decade. But the chief science officer of a big pharma company, or you know, uh, one of the top R and D people, will not be there for that long, right? So very often they move. Every time there is a new CEO, they change R and D. You got a new chief science officer. They change R and D, so very few projects actually mature uh, in this volatile, uh, rapidly changing environment. And if you start a project, and if you don't control it, some some people change within pharma. They go somewhere else, and the project is either discontinued or deprioritized, you know, or killed. So you really, and we've experienced that once at. I'll actually tell you, so... Well, I'm not going to tell you, sorry. Uh, big pharmaceutical company we partnered with in 2015. The new boss comes in, uh, kills 75% of internal projects, uh, starts his own agenda, partners with his buddies, uh, and uh, you know kills many of our projects. And we actually had in mind that uh, plan. We actually already partnered the plan to go end-to-end, discover a new target, generate small molecule, the way into the clinic. Uh, They had a small budget for that. Uh, There there was internal commitment, but that entire group that did a deal with us was eliminated within a year after the new CSO came in. And guess what? Four years later, he is out doing something else, right? And now his uh, new replacement is uh, probably going to to change. But we decided not to do pilots here anymore.
0: That's always the risk of part when a small company partners with a large company, uh, and then also uh, how how can they absorb those innovations, which is often a challenge as well. But we have an interesting question from Twitter. This is from Arsalan Khan. And he wants to know what are the negative and challenging aspects of using AI in drug discovery. Is it uh, inflated expectations? Uh, what are the what are the negative aspects?
1: If you are really using AI, and if you are developing and you are committed to that task, there is no negative aspects. There are only positive aspects. Uh, the negative aspect is that. Uh, um, You've got a lot of very smart financiers around the world, uh, mostly in the U.S., uh, and and actually in China as well, uh, who would look at the trend, who would try to predict the trend, and they say, okay, well, uh, AI is hot. I need to have an AI play. I can come and invest in silicon and take a small piece of uh, of the pie, right? and uh, help somebody with working technology, or I can actually build my own from, from scratch, right? Or from some starting block by somebody. So engineer the uh, company for, to, to, for, for, to access financial markets. And what they would do, they would put a lot of capital into the company from scratch, right? So from, from zero. So the company doesn't need to actually go through the same process we went through where it's organically generated. So you try to build from scratch. Uh, you, you bring a lot of uh, big executives, right? So you think, okay, well, how do I access financial markets if I don't have the tech? I find great people and they buy, uh, it becomes like football, right? So uh, they try to uh, get somebody top from Google, from Stanford, uh, from, uh, you know, big pharma, somebody very old from big pharma, uh, and it becomes, you know, a Tatooine. So you've got many, many different species with high profiles in one company, in one bar, right? And, uh, and then they start building. So it becomes a chimera uh, that with a lot of egos uh, where technology takes the uh, backseat, right? So it's not, it's not the main objective. Their main objective is to, to get the company listed on a public market, right? They try to in-license the compound, say that, look, now we actually have, um, uh, we, we've done it using AI. Nobody saw that AI, right? But yeah, we've in-licensed something. Or very often, uh, they hype it up and say, oh, I've got this new technology or I've got this new idea of generating machine-learnable data using robotics. I have never discovered the target but I think that with this technology I can and even before they lay, lay the ground foundation in the ground floor of the lab they go to big pharma again because of the big bosses are involved they make a few big deals saying okay well here is you know 50 million uh 25 million up front and $1 billion dollars in arrears and uh, we are going to in 5 in 5 years 2 years 3 years deliver something to this big pharma, right? Big pharma has those budgets. And when big bosses are involved, it's easier for them to make those deals, right? The bigger the deal, the easier it is to make, believe it or not. Uh, And um, because you are not trying to get small budget from, you know, a team that can use it internally, you are getting it from the big company. Uh, And uh, very often, those deals, they later fail. The company recognizes that oh AI company did not deliver, and then they think that all companies in AI cannot deliver, right? Because oh, because this person was a super executive at Google, and uh, somebody was a big professor at Stanford, and somebody was a big 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 shot in you know big pharma. They came together and they couldn't deliver, and that's why AI doesn't work. Uh, And that's the real danger of. uh, you know, building the company from scratch to access financial market to be in the trend, instead of uh, you know organically being in the field.
0: Alex, behind you is a photograph that I believe is your lab. And
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's are. me.
0: <laughs> and your lab is run using uh, generative AI and robotics. Tell us about that.
1: When we started, that we are going to use as much publicly available data as possible, right? Uh, and use generative AI to make to figure out how to work with this publicly available data. This publicly available data, so it's usually biological data and also text data, uh, is usually not very clean, right? And it's not exactly um, designed for machine learning. However, we've We've seen with ChatGPT and many other generative tools, right, that they also take publicly available data and actually provide very useful content, right, in imaging, in uh, text. So it's not only about the quality of the data, it's about the algorithm. So we focused on the algorithm first and developed uh, a system that can generate small molecules on demand and also identify novel targets on demand without the generation of new data, right? Uh, Just using publicly available stuff. And we've demonstrated that it works by taking uh, the AI discovered target, AI generated molecule, all the way into human clinical trials, right? So now we are starting phase two, right? So, and demonstrated it works. So, anybody who wants to refute this argument, you know, show me your molecule that you've uh, uh, for a new target that you've taken into the clinic. There are nobody else that I know of that managed to do I
0: that. I love that. I love that challenge. Show me your molecule that you've taken into the clinic. That's awesome.
1: That's so the new kind of uh, way to cut through BS, right? So I think that this is the new benchmark for companies entering this field. And I think before you start uh, raising a big pile of money, you need to demonstrate that you've uh, at least got a preclinical candidate. Let's say you raise five million, right? if you are doing it in the U.S., because it may be a little bit more expensive. Um, so let's say you raise $5 million, and with $5 million, you deliver a preclinical candidate. Preclinical candidate meaning that uh, you've completed at least uh, two or three efficacy experiments in mice. So you cured cancer in mice. right? And those experiments, by the way, are not exactly very expensive. Uh, you, can, you can outsource them. Uh, but if you don't have that, you shouldn't be raising you know, $500 million or, or even like $50 million. Maybe 50 is fine, but not, uh, no, no, not a few hundred. Uh, but that's, that's the benchmark. But now, coming to the lab, in um, 2019, we actually thought about and we started partnering with companies that uh, generate uh, data automatically right, using robotics. And we saw that uh, when you've got still humans in the loop, uh, you would still be very biased when picking the targets. So anytime the human looks at the target, it's like quantum mechanics, right? So you look at the particle, and it's either a wave uh, or, uh, or not, right? Uh, <laughs> um, or it's a particle. Um, and... The, 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 depending on whether you looked at it or not, right? So here, if the pharmaceutical, big pharmaceutical executive looks at the target list, that's it, they already know, they are biased, they know the targets that they know, uh, they saw something that is logical, and they will try to cling to this target choice. So we actually don't, didn't want to even show humans the target lists uh, before the targets get validated. That was the big idea. So how do we debias people to allow for more greater exploration? Because every pharmaceutical executive, they want confidence. They actually want to go after something that is more likely to work within their short career in the pharmaceutical company, right? Uh, and um, we decided to build our own lab that would allow for generative AI exploration from scratch, not just to train AI on machine-learnable data. No, that's not what we are trying to do. We wanted to allow for genuine uh, AI imagination to take place, uh, and then you validate those hypotheses that come from this AI imagination with real experiments and reinforce those uh, pathways that actually worked. So let me show you what we did. Uh, and by the way, during that time, COVID hit. <laughs> you probably, nowadays, we kind of tend to forget about it, right? But 2020, we got COVID and the world decoupled, right? So China uh, went on lockdown, right? So actually inside China, you could still work, but you could not just travel there very easily. So I spent 14 weeks in quarantines building my lab. And I decided to. So every time you go there, two weeks quarantine. And I loved it, right? Actually, again, I think that right now China is being demonized by the entire world, especially by the US. But it's, you know, most of the things you hear on TV are not true. It's kind of complete garbage. So nowadays, I actually think that fake news is a real term um, because, you know, people there are extremely hardworking, they're extremely friendly, they are very cooperative. And I think that if aliens landed in China during COVID, if they didn't have COVID and they were friendly, they would be welcome, right? So I landed in Suzhou and decided to build my lab there because they have robotics capabilities like none other. And, of course, uh, the, con- the country itself, internally, they are open. Is just the, uh, you need to spend two weeks in quarantine, uh, And uh, I'll show you the footage. Of what, uh, of what happened. Uh, so this is our company, right? So we are truly global. We have eight R&D sites. This is one in Shanghai. Uh, that's where we do drug discovery. And many people um, uh, in drug discovery work there to supervise many contract research organizations that actually make uh, drugs and make, synthesize and test them. Uh, So, we have a a pretty epic floor, a great presentation area, super high-tech. One and a half hours' drive away from Shanghai Suzhou, or 30 minutes by train. Um, This is April 2022, so exactly a year ago. Uh, We got this space. We have a logo on the building, uh, and that is me promising to build a lab. Uh, April 2022, so last year, Uh, And then again, COVID pandemic hit. So there were some restrictions. But as I've mentioned, so these people are true heroes. They worked uh, and slept there in this lab. And uh, uh, I've never seen people more hardworking, right? So here you have a gas leak and they're still working in respirators. That's me sleeping in the lab. Uh, And that is today. So you walk in, we wanted to make sure that looks like a spaceship as well. So people understand that they are working in the future. It's face activated, you walk in uh, to your uh, right, uh, you've got dimmed uh, windows where we have uh, we can undim them and see the robots, but most of the time we have some confidential stuff there that we don't want to show, but we can also show the workflows. We've got a presentation area, you've got miniature copies of every room with the robots that we have. Uh, you can actually see the workflow. on December 29th, so just three months ago, I opened this lab. Uh, and uh, invited a few partners uh, from big pharmaceutical companies uh, to see uh, how it works. This is my co-CEO, Dr. Ren, who is actually the true hero of this revolution. This is a real workflow from the lab. So, we take an animal uh, tissue, uh, send it to the robot. The robot picks it up, grinds it, microplates it, does quality control, passes it to another room. So, by the way, after that human work is over, after you put in a sample, Uh, We've got AGVs, autonomous guided vehicles that work around the lab to ensure that there are no human error. Uh, You get imaging, high content imaging. uh, You've got uh, high resolution imaging. uh, And in parallel, you start a workflow for next generation sequencing. So you prepare several libraries. Uh, You prepare the library for whole genome sequencing, for RNA sequencing, for methylation. We also collect a few other data types that I don't want to talk about because people will say that they also have it, even if they don't. Um, And uh, um, we prepare those libraries, uh, give it to the sequencer. Uh, We get uh, methylation data and uh, transcriptomic data and a few other data types that we feed into AI in addition to uh, sequencing. So, again, this AI has been validated, and we know that it can discover targets. So now it starts the exploration phase. It picks the targets, uh, looks at those that already have compounds, uh, and picks those compounds from the Compound Hotel. Uh, puts those compounds uh, onto the liquid handler. Uh, there, they get uh, uh, microplated, they get aliquoted, uh, and being prepared for what's what yet to come. Then we pick. We also do a bunch of uh, quality control experiments here. We can get, can do also Echo, uh, some enzymatic assays. Uh, in parallel, uh, you pick up the samples from the incubator that you put on origi- put in uh, there originally. Uh, incubate them with the predicted compounds. Put them back into so uh, uh, um, uh, we'll put the compounds in. Put it back into the incubator. And after that, you have three parallel workflows. Again, you get high content, high resolution imaging. You get methylation, transcriptomics, and a few other data types. Uh, AI learns if it uh, picked the right targets. If those compounds worked and did what they wanted, what 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 you wanted them to do. Uh, and for most promising targets, uh, humans would get the signal, and they can also do human-level validation, uh, and we can pursue some of those targets. But most of the time, the AI just picks those compounds and trains to get the right targets. In parallel, we have a CRISPR um, workflow, so for those com- uh, targets that they don't have the compound, you can also do CRISPR screens. But originally, you actually want to find those targets that are addressable with small molecules, and it learns all the time. So, generative AI is uh, being reinforced using real experiments. I don't think that there is anything like that. So, some people talk about you know, using machine-learnable data for training. This is not what we do. We only train. So, those are pre-trained models running a lab.
0: Alex, we're just about out of time. Let's take one last question quickly from... Twitter, uh, and this is again from Arslan Khan, who wants to know what happens when the uh, underlying data is biased. For example, let's say that there, you don't have sufficient data gathered on the effects of a certain medication or on certain groups of people since maybe th- those groups could not afford the medication. How, does, how do you handle that situation?
1: In our case, we can actually pursue many, many, many alternatives, right? So usually you start with the alternatives uh, and the pathways where you do have the data, right? And again, uh, getting one drug to the market, it's a traditional approach, $2 billion, right? In our approach, it's going to be significantly cheaper and faster, but still it costs you a lot of money. So you have very, very few shots on goal. So usually you select the cases where you do have the data. If you don't have the data, you need to generate the data. Uh, either experimentally or use a generative approach. But then the probability of success is going to be lower. So, uh, again, drug discovery, it's a, it's, a brutal, I mean, it's a brutal thing. Right now, this, this year, we're going to see maybe 60 million people die of aging and other diseases, right? Because, they, it's no, because those, you know, there's no cures. And by the way, there is aging anyway. So if diseases do not kill us, aging will. Um, and uh, so life is not fair, right? Uh, whatever you do, you still keep losing after a certain age. Uh, so you need to start solving problems in the order of the priority, right? So on the priority is, A, demonstrate a clear case that AI can be used to uh, get a drug through human clinical trials uh, discovered from scratch with a novel target. That takes a long time, a lot of capital. Uh, before you complete that, you shouldn't be thinking about uh, you know other outlying cases and uh, uh, significant democratization of this because uh it's a it's it's going to continue to be a very expensive process um the way we demo- we want to democratize this and I'm going to show you a slide um just so you understand that it's not uh, you know um, it's not But uh, just words, we do have a plan for that. Um, So the idea uh, that I currently carry is to validate this lab uh, as much as possible uh, with my own projects and uh, also customers' projects. uh, But then miniaturize this lab to the level where I can maybe make it into even two rooms, right? Or maybe even one room if I'm uh, lucky. So, see, we want to expand the lab uh, and add additional capabilities, but we also want to miniaturize the lab, optimize it so that it becomes small enough. And uh, uh, that this lab I would need to um, build in three D, so it has to go um, to the ceiling of the laboratory, and humans would not be able to walk in. So that's very dangerous because very often you need repairs or reagent changes or something breaks. So you need to be very good at this and um, to to miniaturize this kind of uh, technology. But my idea is to miniaturize and put it on hospitals so that the hospital would acquire all the capabilities that my company has. So they don't need to share the data with anybody. I don't need their data. That's what people misunderstand usually about my company. So we have a policy. We don't touch your data, right? I don't want your data. Uh, we, we actually will refuse your data most of the time um, uh, because it's, it's, it, it has dangers in there, including all kinds of geopolitical dangers. Um, uh, but we want you to be able to discover targets, right? And if I give you the lab and the software to run it, you can actually discover targets at hospital premises, right? So what doctors do well? They can take biopsies, right? They can throw biopsies in the lab. And uh, um, the lab would help them identify a pathway to treat the patients better now. But also, as you get more samples, you can identify new targets. And that's the way to democratize drug discovery globally for the first time in human history. Right. So if you can do drug discovery at hospital premises uh, run by physicians, and physicians are usually not at the level, unless you are talking about, you know, physicians who work in pharma, drug discovery. So physicians don't have the capabilities usually to discover drugs. But with AI and this robotics capability, physicians will have the ability to acquire those superpowers. And imagine that countries that never discovered a target that, that result in another drug, and actually that's most of the countries... You put a few of those uh, robots in hospitals, and now you know countries like Saudi Arabia or uh, uh, the UAE, oil-rich countries, they can now convert their petrodollars into viable drugs. How cool is that, right? And you can put it in Africa. Yeah,
0: we have a couple of other questions. I'm just going to ask you to answer them very briefly because we are past time. Uh, this first one is from Jed McKenzie, who says, What is your opinion on the use of AI in medical writing and regulatory submissions? Very quickly, please.
1: In medical writing, currently the accuracy of generative systems is very low. So before you have uh, massive benchmarking and validation of uh, medical uh, writing AI, you should probably not use it. And by the way, uh, if you get caught doing that later on, uh, you might get prosecuted to, to just uh, demonstrate uh, uh, how it works. I published a paper with ChatGPT GPT recently and made a few cases around that. So you can look at my uh, article in Nature Medicine uh, about the dangers of using, using generative AI for medical writing and specifically regulatory submission, no way. Like You don't want to screw your most important time of your life when you are doing anything with the FDA. That has to be pristine. It has to be super-regulated, right? double, triple-quality controlled, and you want to put more effort into doing so. Uh, however, in parallel, you can actually do some benchmarking with AI just for internal experiments, but you shouldn't be using this for submission. Yeah.
0: Another question, again, very quickly. Uh, it's a complicated question, but uh, with generative AI, do you run the risk of uh, violating IP because of the the, the the publicly available data that you're using. It depends.
1: So, well, first of all, if the data is publicly available and generated by the NIH, uh, it is generated with the purpose of exactly this, right? So, you use it for experimentation, and uh, the government doesn't have any IP in that. Uh, and uh, usually, this data is available. So. Google is doing it for you right now. They're helping you with search, right? And you've you've been using uh, other people's uh, data to make discoveries all the time. You are a generative system. So anybody who is creative, they're also generative. (laughs) I uh, try to uh, nowadays use creativity as generativity. Uh, I can uh, substitute those terms. Uh, There will be IP issues when you are... um, Utilizing uh, uh, proprietary data, right? So somebody's proprietary data. If you if you get the full text articles, for example, without paying for them uh, to the publisher, and then uh, there it is possible to watermark and notice that this data was used for generation of your content. Uh, the company that is doing this, it might get prosecuted. So so it's so, a so long debate about this, right? Uh, because in this case, AI is just like a human, right? So uh, it, 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 it needs to be treated as a human. So if the human saw something and learned and then generated something new, if the level of no- novelty is very high uh, and uh, uh, there is no way to trace uh, the, um, where you got the original, uh, you know, maybe pre-training data for yourself, uh, then there should not be IP issues. But uh, if there is a clear trace, then, yeah, there will be IP issues. The way, in chemistry, there shouldn't be a problem, right? So because there uh, you uh, rely on massive chemistry data sets, and um, uh, if your molecule is not similar to anything that's published or uh, patented or in the process of being patented, it's very diverse, uh, then you should not have any IP issues. You own the, the, the asset.
0: With that, I'm afraid we're out of time, Alex. Thank you so much for taking your time to be with us today. I really appreciate it.
1: Happy to be with you. And uh, again, I think AI and robotics are going to do great things. The big goal for all of us is to solve aging. It's a big statement to make, but uh, I think that once you set this goal, uh, you know, high enough and the bar high enough, uh, everything else starts looking achievable. And I mean, I actually think even aging is achievable, but uh, um, uh, that's, that's where AI is going to make the big, biggest difference. And actually, my kind of biggest contribution, I think, in generative AI was um, starting to train uh, generative systems on longitudinal data to generate synthetic data with age as a generation condition. And uh, that allows you to play with much more data, synthetic data, than you can think of. And I think aging should be a priority for all of us.
0: Absolutely. And uh, there's no doubt that AI is going to have a profound impact on all parts of our lives, including drug discovery and medicine. And thank you, everybody, for watching. Now, before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. And hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so we can send you our newsletter. And with that, thanks for watching, everybody. I hope you have a great day. Check out CXOTalk.com and we will see you again next week. Have a great, have a great one.